Hi everyone, I'm sitting here at um, Dubai International Airport, so I'm going to apologize in advance for some of the noise. I wasn't able to get a private um, meeting room to do this podcast because I arrived a bit too late for my flight. So I'm on my way to uh, Warsaw in Poland. Looking forward to that trip. It's probably my seventh time to Poland, but um, I think this will be the first time where I'll actually have a few days to have a look around. So one of our listeners had uh, the idea of putting together a podcast on the biggest mistakes someone myself or someone else I knew had made while at a management consulting firm and he wanted me to look at the different levels from junior analyst all the way to senior partner level. So I thought that was a great idea for a podcast because I think you know, mistakes mean different things to different people and I could maybe draw out some of the attributes of what makes out a great consultant but also some very counterintuitive advice that could be brought into this podcast. Before I get into the podcast, I wanted to point out a couple of things that's going to inform this, um, the advice I'm going to give you. I think the first thing to remember is that when I started off as a as an analyst and business, um, sorry, analyst and then uh, associate and so on, I had worked at just one firm. So in 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 the initial stages, I'm going to give advice from just one firm um, and the people I had observed and my mistakes in that one firm, and. Only when I reached the level of principal did I start moving around. When I became a partner, I started moving. Ar- I started moving around. I was never a senior partner. I left as a partner, but of course, I still have many senior partners as colleagues that I uh, speak to almost on a daily basis. So I can talk to you about the mistakes they have made or the mistakes I've observed. So I think in the early stages, it's going to be a very blinkered view of just one firm. But later on, as I get to more senior levels, I could draw on a more richer variety. And of course, um, you know. I could talk about experiences that I know of other people who had made mistakes when they're analysts, but I'm wary of providing third-hand information because I wasn't part of the event and I'm merely giving my interpretation. I'd rather talk about events that I'd seen or I was a part of. Uh, I think it's it's better to give it to give those kind of events because they're open to less interpretation. And then finally, um, I would caution people on thinking about mistakes as things that are wrong. I find many people make mistakes, but it doesn't actually hurt their career because sometimes a mistake is something whereby maybe you've done very well, but you could have done a whole lot better if you hadn't done something. So a mistake is not always negative. It can also be less of a positive. So let's begin at the analyst level, right? I'm going to talk to you through, I'm going to focus heavily on the mistakes I made and the mistakes my colleagues made because when I started off as a consultant I belonged to quite a close-knit group of uh, analysts about um, 10 of us that you know socialized a lot even though we were across three different offices and spoke a lot about um, what was happening in our careers and really drew in each other's advice. I was the um, I would suppose I was the uh, outlier in this group because while I'm a sociable person, I don't consider myself extremely sociable like others. I mean, some people like going out and you know, having dinners and so on. I'm more of a workaholic and I've always been a workaholic. Um, so, so let's get into some of the mistakes, right? And I'm going to try to focus on things that are meaty and insightful as opposed to the obvious things like, you know, you have to work hard and so on. The, everyone knows that. Let's avoid those things. I think the most, the first real mistake I made a major mistake was to assume my career trajectory was set. What do I mean by that? Well, when I joined as an analyst, a business analyst, or analyst, I mean, each firm is going to have its own uh, definitions here, right? When I joined as an analyst, the McKinsey equivalent I'm giving you as a business analyst, I made the assumption that I need to spend two years at this firm, and then I would go do my MBA, and then I'd be promoted to an associate. And I remember... That was what everyone thought when we came in, you know. 
you spend two years, you know, roughly two years, you then apply to Harvard or Wharton or INSEAD or whatever the school is, and then you go off and you do your MBA. And what happens is people plan their business analyst career around this milestone. They think to myself, okay, I got to do well so the firm sponsors me to do my MBA and then I can move on. So what did I do well? I put myself onto projects where I thought that I would do well, but I wasn't really looking to shoot out the light. So I looked at other managers, and in fact, my mentor was probably a bad mentor. He was an engagement manager. He had taken uh, two years to two and a half years to to as a business analyst. He then went into his MBA. He then came back into the firm, and I think he spent another two and a half years to become an engagement manager. And because my my mentor had been through that route, in his mind, that was the only route to be promoted. And he sort of he gave me advice on what I needed to do to spend two years or two and a half years, do my MBA and then spend two years, two and a half years and become engagement manager. And I made the tragic mistake of following him for the first six months, right? For the first six months, I did that um, and, you know, Everything was going well. I was getting good feedback. I mean, I had a few pro- bad projects which I've spoken about before, but nothing traumatic. You know, I was doing pretty well. And one thing that really shook me is is one year into my period as a business analyst, another business analyst I knew of vaguely, a female from Stanford, was promoted from analyst to associate. And, and that just shook me because what I realized is that the advice I was getting was totally wrong. You know, here's an Yes, yes, a Stanford economist, very nice uh, lady, by the way. I mean, really helpful. I really liked her. Um, I've worked with her only once briefly on an internal project, but I just liked her demeanor, her style. You know, she was not one of these intense people, but she was academically intense. I mean, you wouldn't mess with her when it came to her work because she knew what she was doing. Very friendly, but just a, a really nice person as well. And and that for me was a huge make up, wake up call. And it made me realize my first mistake is that I was mapping my career trajectory to a very bad average so what i had done is i would i would just assumed it was normal to spend two years two and a half years as an associate as an, a business analyst and then be then going to business school and here was someone who had just an uh, i think it was undergraduate degree in economics um i don't think it was a master's an undergraduate degree in economics from stanford and got promoted one year it was about one year or one year, two months or something, but something really shocking. And I remember I was a little bit disappointed because at that point I had considered that I was one of the outstanding business analysts at the firm, at least in these offices that I had you know, been working in. And that shook me a little bit. I can't say that um, that weekend was a good weekend for me or that long weekend. It was actually announced on a long weekend. It was very disappointing for me because I always thought I was one of the great great uh, business analysts. That's the kind of feedback I received. And here's this, this is a great colleague who had just broken every barrier and I, and I went back and I thought to myself what I had done wrong it took me a long time to figure it out it didn't happen overnight but over the next few weeks I realized that look you know what my mentor is he's assuming because he took so long to do things I should take as long as well so I went and ferreted out some other people who had um, who I thought were on a strong and fast trajectory through the firm and I remember finding a very young partner who had just zoomed through the ranks as well. Um, an MBA, he has an MBA, but um, this guy had moved through the ranks rapidly. I think he became partner at the age of 28 or something like that, but very young partner, right? And I, and I spent, started spending a lot of time with him being put onto his project and so on. And his feedback was very different, you know? You can't, you can't map your trajectory to the average. You know, if you feel you're ready to go ahead, then you need to do the work of the quality that shows you're ready to go ahead. And, that, and that's my first mistake. 
assuming the advice I get is always the best advice, and clearly the career advice I was getting in terms of how I could be promoted was wrong. I mean, the advice I was getting was, was you know, basically my mentor had taken um, the average promotion times of everyone in the firm, plotted a normal distribution, and read off the mean and said, that's how long I should take. But why should I take two years, then do my MBA? So I definitely changed my behavior dramatically. So that's my first mistake, and I changed my behavior quite a bit. I stuck to this young partner like you know a wet t-shirt. I, I tried to put myself on many of his projects as I could, and I was very lucky that in a, in a I think a year period after that, I managed to put myself on all of his projects. And the other thing I did, which was sneaky, but I suppose I got away with it, is that in, in our office at that time, all of the principals and partners sat in one area of the office, obviously, like most offices. And there was a space next to them, which was unoccupied, and I just took my stuff there and sort of strolled across and plonked down and made that my office. And I sat there all the time. I mean, you know how it works in a, in a consulting firm. You don't have your own desk, right? You move in and out by project, And but I just made that my office. Even when I was in project, I left all my stuff behind, my photographs and so on. So the, now... Why Why could I do that? I mean, most people say, but you can't do that. But you can do that. It depends on how you carry yourself. I mean, for, I may, became very good friends with some of the partners. Well, most of the partners. I was very close to some of the partners. In fact, I mean, one of the most disappointing things for me was, uh, I remember one of my very good friends telling me that, you know, some of the people are worried about telling you things because you're so close to the partners. They're worried about if they tell you they're unhappy about something, it'll get to the partners. Now, that disappointed me a little bit because, you know, my integrity was being questioned, but it also was another lesson for me, you know. Don't just build relationships upwards, build relationships laterally. That was my second mistake I think I made. I built up too many upwards relationships which really pushed my career forward, but I had no friends at my level. I mean, really? Well, I built some close relationships when I started. By the time I had one, it was one year in, one and a half years in, I had no relationships at the lateral level. So, you know, I would work with people and I was asked to be on projects, but not because people liked me, I think, but because I was very good. It's not that I ever did anything. It's not that I ever did anything um, bad to my colleagues. I mean, when we had you know when we had these um, company events and so on, we had the office events. I remember once we had a charity event to play golf with a um, with a nonprofit. I partnered up with some of the partners. That was my golf team, and I played with them. I didn't really spend time to build relationships with my peers, which is, in hindsight, I think it was a negative thing. It it didn't hurt my career progression, but I think it definitely hurt my ability to build teams. So so that was a second mistake. But coming back to the story, I just sat myself down there, and the reason this worked out well is because the young partner I was working with, he, he specialized in a sector, uh, in a very capital-intensive sector, and he... He was, um, all his clients was on basically on this two kilometer stretch of road, which is literally 300 meters from our office. So, you know, it worked well because for that one year, for that one year or six months or whatever it is, I just worked really hard and I got promoted again without going for my MBA. That was the key thing. You know, I, people, you know, listen to the podcast will, will know that I have a business background, but I don't really have a formal MBA. I mean, my background's in, um, in um, uh, the sciences, I may have adva- advanced science degrees and so on, but um, that was a very big insight for me that you know you can't rely on other people. And what distinguished me, I think, was when I worked for this other for this new partner, the young partner. My my other lesson or the other mistake I'd made previously was that I relied too heavily on the partner. So while I was getting good feedback, 
about the work I was doing, I was not really taking ownership. I mean, honestly, I was not taking ownership. I remember many times I would come in, do some in the slides, and I would give her what I thought was an adequate version to the partner for him to check and do. And when I worked for this young partner, he made it very clear, look, I'm not going to check your work. I'm not going to do your work for you. You're accountable. You do it. Your job, it is your job to find me. The bottom line is if you take over something, it must be ready for me. And it was hard for me to do that because I didn't know what to do at times. I mean, I remember once doing an insurance analysis and I thought to my God, oh my God, this industry I understand nothing about. What does premiums mean? And the insurance industry uses all these weird terminology. They don't speak English. Now, I still believe there's a great opportunity to start an insurance company that speaks English to their customers. So anyway, I really struggled on this project. I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember coming to the partner and I was asking him, what do I do? And he said, okay, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You give me your interpretation of what the data is telling me and what you think you should do, and we'll discuss that. And I never really understood that at that time. I mean, I'd still come back to him and say, you know, what do I do? Only after a really long period, I'd go back to him and say, okay, this is what I think is happening. This is what I think we should do. And he says, okay, why do you think that? And we had this discussion. And it took me a long time to realize that consultants are paid for their interpretation. And I see that with many young consultants today. They come to me... Even consultants we guide who are now employees of BCG and McKinsey because we, te we, we train consultants who are at these firms as well, even Bain consultants. They come and say, Michael, I don't know how to do this project. And I say, okay, you know, you understand that you are paid for your interpretation. So irrespective of whether you don't know what you think you don't know, tell me what you think is happening here and we'll work on that. So that was my other lesson, you know, I really needed to understand that I must provide my interpretation of things. Unless I provide my interpretation of things, um, you know, I'm never going to move forward. I'm paid for my interpretation. Think about it. what else do I bring the to the party? I mean, I I can't do anything else really, right? I mean, all I have is a degree in a field that's not business. Even for the business graduates, all you have is your ability to interpret interpret data. So you have to bring that to the table. And just some other general guidelines for being a business analyst. Um, I think that a lot of people, when they join, they try to be loved. You know. It's this uh, love me syndrome. They try to be liked by everyone. So I see, a, I, I've saw it in my group as well. There's a group of business analysts who try to get involved in a lot of internal office uh, uh, work. And also what I call, you know, um, things that are not really important to the firm. All these activities around helping nonprofits, internal projects and so on. Those things are nice and I think you should do it. But remember, they, they suck out your time. And no one's ever gotten promoted for doing an internal project, no one, unless you know it's something really big, like a huge study. But if you, if you, if you're spending all your time working on an internal project where the office had committed to help a nonprofit, you're not going to be promoted. You're not going to learn the right skills. I mean, you can learn some skills, but not really all of them. And I think you must be cautious of committing yourself to these things. I saw people volunteering for everything, and they just wouldn't have any time to focus on the things that were important. First few months, you learn about the office. You learn about how decisions are made. Once you feel comfortable, then you start committing very tentatively to certain things and then you slowly build up and up but I'll be honest with you if you are good on on projects you will do well and in fact it's going to take up most of your time anyway and just the other thing is you know be careful of what you do in social functions I've seen many consultants make comments um, I remember one consultant I remember this very it'll, it's probably be stuck in my head when I die as well we were um, we were we had had an a sort of a, what we call them, an off-site uh, cocktail event on a Friday. It was beautiful, you know, evening, the sun's setting in the sky, warm weather, and a couple of the partners and analysts, a couple of us had decided to go to a nearby sushi bar for um, dinner. And 
obviously a couple of these guys had too much to drink and we were talking about something and, it, and the words sort of filtered back to one of the new executive assistants who had joined us who I must say was very beautiful uh, a, a very 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 attractive woman uh, who to this day probably ranks as one of the most attractive women I've seen but anyway I remember very clearly one of the um, associates made a comment I, I thought it was a derogative comment about why he found her attractive and I mean people laughed about it because they didn't want to say anything but he got tired with that for the rest of his career I mean no matter where he went after that people always referred to that event and it was not a compliment I mean what he said was wrong he shouldn't have said it he could never take it back I mean later on when it when it was you know when people referred to that when he was sober you could see he was uncomfortable about it I mean, he tried to hide it and so on. He tried to make it part of his persona that he's this tough guy. But really damaged his reputation, especially with the female consultants when they heard this comment. Uh, so the point is, you, you firstly, it's wrong to think these things, I think. Um, you know, if you, just because you don't say it doesn't make it right. But I think that even if you're thinking it, by God, don't say things like that. I mean, you're always being watched and you're always being observed no matter where you are as a consultant. Just because you leave the office at uh, 8 p.m. or whatever it is, um, doesn't mean you stop living the firm's value. So I think those are some of the pieces of advice I could give at the associate level. Sorry, at the business analyst level. Let's talk about the associate level, right? The associate level is quite a difficult one because you've got these, uh, this army of well-groomed, well-bred, and well-educated MBAs entering the firm or advanced PhDs and so on. So for most people, it tends to be highly, highly intimidating. It's highly intimidating, I think, for a number of reasons, right? Firstly, if you lack confidence and you come across some rabid business analyst or rabid associate who had been promoted from business analyst, you're going to look like a fool because these people know more than you, especially if you don't have a consulting background. So I see all these uh, Harvard, Wharton, MBAs, they all put on this tough exterior and they join the consulting firm and they really suffer because they have to hit the ground running, right? They have no consulting background and they've got to hit the ground at 380 kilometers per hour and it's tough for them. Some of them do well, a lot don't do well, right? That's why they get managed out. So I think my first mistake I see many people making is again, they don't understand the intensity of what's required as an associate. People don't get it. You know, the year, the hours are long, but it's not just the hours, it's the speed at which you are working through those hours. Management consulting is a hundred meter race every day. It's not a marathon. That's the mistake people think. You know, it's not as if you're joining um, in a boring uh, Ingelheim, you work there for five years in one level, you work for three years in another level. It's not like that in management consulting. The, the amount of work you have to produce in a day and the quality you have to produce is insane. People never understand that. They always think I'll have a lot of time to do things. You never have enough time. There's always a deadline from yesterday. The quality is just brutal. You're being checked at every single step and you have to produce the analysis. And maybe many, many people struggle to do this. I think the first mistake I observed with people is that they don't appreciate the volume and the quality that is required. It is an absolutely crazy amount. I mean, people would come in, I, I, in when I was on projects with MBAs who had just joined, they'd come in, they were not. They knew it would be tough, but they just never grasped how tough it would be. I've been on projects where you know, working alongside MBAs, but also when I was a partner and I'd bring in MBAs, sometimes they'd join on a Monday, they'd, they'd work till three in the morning every single night for that week. But they don't get it. They, never, they don't understand how difficult it is. I mean, many do. And I think if people do understand the time requirements, they never understand the intensity. It is intense. It is intense. 
and you have to work as a team. And that's the other thing people don't get. I find a lot of candidates are good at doing the work by themselves, but they just understand this concept of teamwork. This this approach of always feeding back what you know to your colleagues so they can understand where you are and this concept of taking information on from colleagues in terms of what they are working to influence your work. So, you know, people who like putting on earphones and sitting in the corner and doing work don't generally do very well in a consulting environment. They get managed out quite quickly because they can't handle this backwards and forwards sharing of information. And it's a very it's a great pity because I've seen some very outstanding associates you know fall into this trap. So what are the other mistakes? Okay, I do find one common mistake associates make is that I think a lot of, because of the trajectory of MBAs today, we're getting a lot of young MBAs. I mean, I've certainly seen that in my career, you know. MBAs now are entering at the age of 26, 27, 28. I mean, some of them are really young. I actually met an MBA who was 24 years old from INSEAD. I mean, 24. And one of the things I think MBAs need to understand is that at some point in your career, you've got to understand that you're no longer a child, you're now a leader. You have to stop acting like you're there to, you know, I've seen this many times with people where they have this attitude that they are there to learn and they're constantly learning and learning. Yes, I mean, that's wonderful. But while you are learning, you also have the uh, attitude that you have, that you know enough and you're trained well enough to make decisions. So what do I mean by this? I've seen many people who have this mentality that they are there to learn and they're not ready to lead. And I think that when you join a consulting firm at the associate level, you have to have the mentality that, yes, you are there to learn, but you're also there to lead as you are learning. And I'd like to see people be proactive and take responsibility. One of the most striking examples of a mistake ever made is a Wharton's, I mean, a graduate who I think graduated one of a Wharton's top MBA graduates in that year. She was one of the top graduates, if not the best. I'm not sure how this worked, but I remember reading a profile, and I think it said number one graduate in Wharton, a top one percent or top five percent but she was one of the best right she won many awards and so on you know she had appeared she was well known i mean when we hired her we were the firm was very happy to bring her in and and we were we were quite impressed with how she did in the interviews and so on so there's a lot expected of her and you know i always told you about these rabid analysts remember i told you about them the ones who get promoted or have the ability to be promoted without doing the mba so she came across a rabid analyst and these, so she had paired up, she was going to lead the analysis on the, um, I can't remember what it was. Um, I think it was the transfer pricing model for the telecoms company. And she got paired up with this rabid analyst. And this rabid analyst ran circles around. I mean, this, this, this analyst just made her look bad and, and not intentionally. I think the analyst was very, very, very supportive of what the associate was going through, was really trying to help the associate, was even trying to give the associate a material to present to make her look good. I, it was not the it was not the analyst's fault, yeah. But just the intensity at which the analyst was burning, you know, this lady was, the analyst was a female as well, was just burning, you know, the, the brightness, you know, this incandescent light bulb. You know, she, the analyst designed designed the, the, the analysis to be run, which was a fairly complex analysis, I must say. It wasn't easy. This is why we put the Watt and, you know, number one grad in finance into it. Led the entire stru um, structuring of the project did the analysis, did most of the interviews, and sort of the, the associate was just tagging along for the ride. I mean, it was one of the most it was one of the most beautiful things to see, to be honest, to watch this analyst step up and say, you know, I don't you know and she was she was a very nice person, the analyst. You know, she wasn't trying to make the associate look bad, but just the attitude of you know, just the attitude of, you know, I'm gonna make this work. I'm going to do this, was wonderful to see, and she's, she went on to do you know, amazing things at the firm and in industry when she went into industry. But it was just sad to watch one of the best MBA graduates we ever hired just fall apart because 
for whatever reason, she either didn't feel she could lead, she wasn't willing to step up, she didn't feel that she had it in her, but she just she just faded away. And I remember the final board meeting, I needed someone to present, and it wasn't the associate that did the presentation. I called in the analyst. I mean, you know, it's a meritocracy at the end of the day. I'm not going to make an associate present and give her credit just because she has the title. It's a meritocracy. I mean, that project led to that analyst promotion, which was, I think, in a year and a half. But it was something quite short, maybe just over a year. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes, you know, the intensity of the work and also this ability to lead. What are some of the other mistakes? I think some of the other mistakes people make is that when you're an analyst, you are leading other people's work. Remember that. You are leading, sorry, when you're an associate, you're leading a team of analysts, maybe another associate in your team as well. So not only do you have to know how to do the work, you have to be able to know how to examine other people's work. And the only way to know how to examine other people's work is if you know the fundamentals well. And I see this with many associates. The first two years you are an associate, you learn the fundamentals. You forget about everything else, but you learn the fundamentals. I call it the hump period. The first two years is where you're getting over the hump. You're learning some very core fundamentals. If you don't get over that hump, the firm can't use you. you are a damaged asset in my opinion because after two years as an associate if you haven't learned these fundamental skills we're not going to invest more money in you i mean some officers may decide to do it but i would say don't do it it's a waste of time and money and if we promote you then how are you going to advise other people if you can't do the fundamentals yourself. So this hump period is very important we have to learn the basics of analysis storyboarding how to engage clients and so on Focus on learning the fundamentals. If you can't build models, you can't do storyboards, you can't structure analysis, you can't manage projects, you're, you're dead in consulting. You're basically going nowhere. So that's a mistake I think a lot of people also make. They forget about the hump here. They think, oh, I've got time to do this. You don't have time to do this. You've got to fix these mistakes right then and there. And I think the other big mistake I make many, I see many associates making is that they don't really build the uh, triad of skills. Uh, so there's four skills. And three, I think, are very important. The four is a rational ability, which is called, you know, the analysis, getting over that hump. The third one is emotional intelligence. You know, you've got to be able to work with teams. In my case, it was, you know, learning to build lateral relationships. I don't think I was very good at that. I think it was my major weakness. But I think I was very good at building, at applying emotional intelligence to solving client problems, which kind of, you know, made up for it. So I think that I was okay there, but with my colleagues, I wasn't so good at it. And the other one is political awareness, which is knowing the undercurrents in the client organization. I think many people don't build three, all three skills. And they always tell me, I graduated first in my class. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why the firm is managing me out. I did the project right. I mean, we speak to people all the time that are doing this. And I've actually observed people being managed out when I was a consultant. You know, one of the things that I always did when I was an associate, when I was an analyst, I didn't worry if, if a partner had said, you know, I didn't wait for permission to meet a client. Let's put it that way. I would go meet a client. I would go up to the CFO as an analyst and go into his office and introduce myself. You know, and I remember one great moment on a project. Um, I was um, as an analyst. Was an analyst, yeah. Yeah, I think I was an analyst. Yes, I was an analyst. And we were working for this multi billion dollar oil and gas company. I mean, this company was a massive company. It was one of the, I think it was the fifth or sixth, fifth or fourth largest company in the world in its field, right? In its sector. And I was just an analyst. 
and we were working on a team of 22 people on this project. It was a huge project. It was massive. And I decided to go and introduce myself to the new CFO. So I went up and I spoke to him and I told him what I'm doing. I explained to him an analyst, but you know, I'm working on the business case. I'm sort of leading it uh, with the support of the associate and I'm really, you know, excited to work with him. But I just wanted to introduce myself and let him know that if he has any questions, I know he hasn't had a time to meet the um, consultants because he's just been appointed. I'll, I'll be very happy to tell him what we're doing and talk him through it. I remember when I came back to the office and the partner, the young partner, the one I was talking to you about, asked me, you know, where have you been? I said, I went to see the CFO. He said, what? He was a bit surprised that I went to see the CFO. He said, no, I went to see him because, you know, um, I thought it would be nice to introduce myself. I saw him, he was available, so I introduced myself. And he asked, what did you just talk about? I said, well, you know, we talked about the project and he had some questions and I said, I'll be happy to answer the question. And, he, and the partner was a bit surprised that I had, you know, put myself out there because what I did was risky. If I go talk to the CFO and I don't know what I'm talking about, I could damage the project. I could damage the relationship. I could cause more problems. The partner was hesitant, but what I liked about him is that he saw initiative and he wasn't going to, you know, tell me, no, don't meet the the client by itself. And actually, I've seen engagement managers do that. I've seen engagement managers where they don't like it when a junior person sort of steps up and they'll try to tag along with the partner. No, I think that's good. But, um, you know, if you need any help preparing for the meeting, you know, um, please come and ask me. And I said, yeah, no problem. I didn't really need any help. I mean, I was one of these, you know, I use the word rabid, but, you know, I was one of these quite aggressive business analysts at this point. This was after I'd heard about someone being promoted after a year. So I was, you know, trying to get my ducks in a row. So I went to see the CFO. I spent about 45 minutes talking to him. He was very happy with what I was talking about. He had a lot of questions, but I answered all of them very well because I knew the basics. And um, that went very well. But I remember very, very clearly it was about a week later, and there was this um, there was an event being held in the main auditorium of the client. It was in the main auditorium is massive. It's this huge hall that's about the size of a cup, of maybe half a rugby field or something, half a football field. And was, um, so, bottom line is, we all arrived there, and you've got the executive committee standing on one side. And at the end of the session, everyone is leaving, and. Um, when the CFO was walking past all the consultants, he came up to me and, you know, he, he asked me how I'm doing and thanked me for my help and blah, blah, blah. But the point is this. Out of all the consultants, and there was a couple of partners there, the CFO, the new CFO, who most of us hadn't even met, comes up to me and thanks me for my help. So, you know, I felt good about it, but it also, I think, delivered a very clear message to everyone. You know, you know this guy is building good relationships and so on. So... The point is, don't make the mistake of thinking you need permission to build client relationships. You have power only if clients like you in a consulting firm. Remember that. If you do good work, if you help clients, clients like you and you move ahead. And that for me was a big lesson. I was very good at building relationships on substance. You know, I was not one of these guys that took people to strip clubs and golf games and so on to build relationships. I was a merit. I built relationships on merit, but I was very good at it. And from that day on, I became I had developed a reputation for building relationships with very tough clients. So whenever we had a tough client, someone who didn't like consultants, I would be sent in to build a relationship with them, because I had a very low-key style of listening. And my philosophy was that you know if someone hates you, they only hate you because they don't know you. Once they get to know you, it's all hunky dory. So, so those are some of the lessons of being an associate, right? Engagement manager. Let's talk about an engagement manager, right? I mean, the biggest mistake I think people make as an engagement manager, and there's not a lot of mistakes you can make, but the biggest mistake is where you don't empower your team to be successful. I've seen, I've worked with many engagement managers. I was an engagement manager at one point, and my philosophy was always, you make your team look like stars. You empower them to look like stars. You, you, you really give them the tools they need to succeed. You use it as an opportunity to broaden their horizons. 
and you make them succeed. So whenever I was put on the projects, I always interview people in inverted commas and tell them, this is the project, are you ready for it, and so on. And I tell them, look, I'm going to give you a stretch roll. Some people tell me, look, I'm not ready for it, I'm not ready for it, and so on. I say, look, I think you are ready for it. I'm going to give this role to you, but I expect you to call for help if you need it. So just you know, do the best you can, but ask for help, because I think if you do this right, it can really be good for your career. So I'd give them these stretch roles. I'd make them look like winners. And the one thing I'm proud of is that almost everyone that reported to me, trained, that was trained by me, went on to very big things. They were in demand in the consulting firm because, because I put them through, through, through so much. So these guys were in demand that gone on to big things. So, now, so that's one of the biggest mistakes I've seen, engage, I've seen engagement managers make. They try to hold their teams down to make themselves look good. And I think that you must never do that. The best engagement managers I've seen, and I've worked with a couple, I would like to think I was a good engagement manager as well, but I've also made some mistakes, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. So I've seen them come in. They won't try to control things. They'll sort of coordinate things and they'll hand off as much of the work and as much of the opportunity to the associate and analyst and, and sort of guide them that stand in the background. I mean, those are the best engagement managers. The worst engagement managers, I would say, worked on a hub-and-spoke model. They would want everything to come through them before it went to the client. They would not want anyone to be in any meetings without them. They would not want you to speak to a partner without them. They would not want you to present anything without them. It just become a horrible way to do it because that's not the way the consulting model is set up. You know, you set some principles up front and as long as people adhere to it, you will be fine. So so that's, I think, one of the biggest mistakes engagement managers make. They forget their role. They're, as an engagement manager, you are like... Well, you are like you're not the captain of a team. You are you are an assistant coach, or maybe a coach of a team. Your job is to let the players play their game. But I think it's not exactly like that because as an engagement manager, you're still quite heavily involved. But I think there are other mistakes that I've made particularly. I think at certain points, when people cannot manage things, you've got to step in and take them out of things. And I've been in that situation where I've let people stay in a position for too long when they weren't able to handle the work and it was my fault I mean purely my fault I should have stepped in a lot earlier I should have said you know what I'm glad you tried but we're really struggling here and we need to to bring in new help so clearly I let things go on a bit too longer and I mean at other times I think that I could have managed some big egos but more carefully I remember there's one particular project where a I think it was a Caltech PhD in physics was building a leasing model for us. And this guy was fairly arrogant about it and you know he said he'd be able to do this in you know 3 days no problem. I said look you should be careful of making comments like that because people hear that when you get your 360 degree feedback and you can't deliver in 3 days you know it's going to hurt you. Um, very arrogant. I mean, supremely arrogant because I think there was this attitude from his side that because he had a physics PhD, he was superior to everyone in that firm. And he really brushed off many people the wrong way. And at the end of the day, he booked his vacation, but he, couldn't, he booked his vacation and three weeks after this comment, he hadn't delivered the model. And I remember he came to me and said, look, I'm, I'm ready to go home now. And I said, okay, but have you finished the work? He said, no, I'll do it tonight. I said, but you're leaving tomorrow morning on vacation. How would you finish it? And he said, no, I'll do it. He left and he didn't finish the work. And I remember sitting up the whole night trying to do the work with the other associates. So the point is this person was obviously managed out very quickly. Managed out because I think the attitude was wrong. Firstly, they had made a mistake, right? They had made a mistake. 
and they left the problem with us. They didn't even try to manage it. If it was me, do you know how many vacations I have missed? Do you know how many Valentine's Days I have canceled? Do you know how many birthdays I have missed because I have had to work? Do you know how many Christmases I have worked through? Do you know how many New Year's Days? I mean, there were some, sometimes on New Year's night where everyone is getting drunk, I would just have one glass of champagne because the next morning at 8 a.m., I've got a call with some client somewhere to deal with something. And I'm willing to do that because I have given my commitment to do something. Integrity counts, right? You know, integrity is your personal credit score. Don't abuse it. It will hurt you in the long term. So I think you've got to take this responsibility. You have to make things work and so on. And as an engagement manager, you have to make tough calls. If things are not working, you've got to speak to the partner and pull out people or bring in support to help them. But you can't just leave things to fester because it will come back to bite you. The other mistake I think you must be very careful of as an engagement manager is sometimes you'll have friends on a project. You're close to people. You like them. Do not let personal feelings get in the way of giving someone a negative score. If someone deserves to be punished, if someone is not carrying their weight, they're not carrying their weight. There's no two ways about it. You know, they have to be punished for it. They have to be moved out. And I mean punished, I don't mean, you know, punished because they, you don't like them, but punished because they're not doing well. You have to move them out. It's going to hurt their career, but that's what it is. The client comes first, not your feelings towards this person. And I think finally, as an engagement manager, you must never blame your team when you've made a mistake. I've seen that with many engagement managers, especially when I was a partner. I was very wary of engagement managers passing the buck. As far as I'm concerned, you are in the firing line if you're an engagement manager. I'm not going to go after you, the associates or analysts. I'm going to go after you. You are accountable to me, and the analysts and associates are responsible, but they're not accountable to me. You are accountable to me. So whenever I plan things as an engagement manager, I would always t t bring my team out. I, the first thing I would do is I'd take them out for coffee or tea or drink somewhere. And I'd tell the partner I'm doing it. You know, take them out, have cigars, we'd spend the whole night bonding. And I'd say, look, guys, I'm really happy you're part of this team. I believe we can really do something amazing, but I need your commitment on this. It's going to be tough, but I want your commitment. But I want you to know that I have your back on this. You support me and I will support you and we'll make this count. But let's do this. So, you know, at one point I was taking out teams all the time for dinners and drinks and cigars and cocktails and so on. But the point is it built camaraderie. But anyway, do not confuse friendship with you doing the right thing. If the team underperforms, you have to take action, right? So that's engagement manager. Um, Let's talk about principle, right? Because there's, I think, a, a principle, and then I'll talk about partner, principal partner, I'll bridge it as well, and then I'll talk a little bit about senior partner and so on. I think when you come, when you get to principal partner level, there's there's two groups. I think there's maybe three groups of partners. They are the partners who are good on projects. They deliver amazing things. Those ones tend to be IP driven. They are guys who develop intellectual property, new ideas which they take to clients, and they can, you know build it out with clients. I've seen other partners who are very, very delivery oriented. So they are the kind of partners who go on to deliver a project. They go on to support the delivery of a project. But they're not necessarily the, ki the guys that build up the newest ideas and the newest styles of thinking and so on. Now, as a partner, I think some of the mistakes that you could make here is that The first thing you must never do is start measuring yourself against other people. There are going to be whiz-kid partners who get promoted you know, in two years to, to director or, or full partner, three years, four years, and so on. And some people take five years, others take six years, others take seven, others take eight, others take ten. The point is, don't beat yourself up over it. Don't, don't benchmark yourself. It's not going to help you. Everyone's different. Everyone's going through this in their own way. Part of how you succeed comes up in terms of the clients you manage, the opportunities you develop, and so on. The other, th So that's the first thing. The second mistake I think many partners make is they... Like at the end of the day, ideas only have... 
you know, a very, they have, a, the half-life of an idea is short. I mean, if you develop some new concept, some other firm is going to copy it, someone else is going to copy it, and over four years, it's going to become old news. So I think as a partner, I've seen many partners, they'll develop what they call, what they think is a good idea, and they'll take it to everyone, and they'll start shopping it around. Don't do that, right? As a partner, your job is to develop a unique solution for the client. Your, your idea is not to be wedded to uh, enterprise cost reduction and take that around to every client and you know, try to sell it to every client. You should never do that as a partner. I've seen some partners do it. They get managed out fairly quickly, but some of them, for whatever reason, try to you know, manipulate their way into the system and they stay there a bit too long. You are not wedded to an idea. Even a strategy, even a, a partner who is in the enter, you know, the cost reduction practice or the operations practice should never be wedded to operations ideas. You know, if you are talking to a client and you see very clearly that their issues are not in operations, then fine, pass it to another partner. But I have seen some partners, definitely a minority, would try to hoard clients and try to keep it to themselves. It's a very bad idea. The other one is, I think, as a partner, you must be developing the next round of partners. Right, So you need to develop your replacement. You need to develop the next engagement manager to replace you, the next principal to replace you, whatever the title is in your firm. I've seen many partners hesitate to do this. Now, the big four accounting firms, I think they, took, they take way too long to make you a partner. Why? Who the hell knows? But I think it also has a lot to do with the fact that these people don't want to leave. In a major consulting firm, the big three, you should be grooming the next level of partner to replace you, which means that you need to be developing yourself to move to the next level. And if you, if you groom someone to replace you and you don't develop yourself to move to the next level, then you get managed out. And I think many people are hesitant to do that. But the other thing as a partner, some of the mistakes you can make is to become too, I think, and this happened to me, I think, at one point, is that because I was pretty good with clients and developing new ideas and so on, I spent too much time developing clients. I mean, there's a period in my life whereby I'd be attending two breakfasts, a lunch, drinks with a client in the afternoon, and then dinner. And you know what? I hated going to restaurants. I absolutely hated it. I would go to a restaurant. I would just, I would go for breakfast. I'd just eat the mushrooms in my breakfast. I would then, I was so tired from the night before, I'd just drink something light, like maybe some water for the next breakfast session, maybe eat a toast. For lunch, I would maybe have a small lunch drinks i would have something then i'd have a you know average uh, average uh, dinner the, 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 on the night but the food started tasting horrible i mean when you start going to a five star rest or oh, sorry three star restaurant and the food starts tasting like sawdust you know you have a problem and besides my lifestyle uh, starting to deteriorate i think i also was becoming far too removed from projects and i was taking on too much i was good at managing clients but i felt that some partners love it they love meeting only clients but that's not a partner that's just someone who just doesn't want to do work. So I then started cutting down on my on the number of clients I was dealing with and decided to focus on just about three or four clients, you know, big multi-billion dollar clients very closely, but spending more time with the project teams, which I thought was important to get to make sure the quality of work was very high. And I think the analysts and associates and engagement managers liked the fact that, you know, one of the partners was able to spend so much time with him. And I think the client also liked it. The client liked the fact that I was there more than I used to be before. And I also hated this fact of just meeting clients in a fancy restaurant. It just gets to you after a while. You know, a lot of people see it as a badge of honor. I don't think it's a badge of honor. I think when you're a general you know, an analogy, you've got to visit the battlefield every few times. And I made a point of spending a lot more time in the field with the consultants and actually 
over a few months I transitioned out some of the accounts I was working with and I focused on just three or four. I think it eventually became five, five but, but just the amount of work we were doing increased because I could spend more quality time with clients, I could spend more quality time with teams, so the quality of the work improved. And obviously we started doing a lot more work. But I think that um, definitely this idea of being a partner with just deals with senior clients and doesn't deal with problems in the field is a bad idea. You must know what's happening in the field. You must know what your teams are going through to understand what you are committing the firm and your team to do for the client. And I think finally, you know, at a certain point, it happens to everyone, you reach partnership level, you you decide whether you want to go for managing director, right? And it's not a question, you are going to make managing director, you just have to spend a few years there. But all partners go through the decision, should they stay or should they go? I mean, some decide to stay. There's a lot of temptation because of the salaries industry offers you. Also, you know, having spent so much time in a management consulting firm, um, there are a lot of things you could do with that name on your resume. You know, launch a startup like what I did, uh, go into other startups, go into industry and so on. I think the most important thing that you must never do is lose sight of what your objective is. You are the guardian of the values at the end of the day. And I've seen some partners do some, you know, unethical things. I've seen some partners do things that I just think to myself, you know, would I have, you know, how would this look if it if it appeared in a newspaper? How would it look if the New York Times published a story, you know, two three years from now? You know, would would we be proud of this? And I would say no. I think once you get to a certain level. As a partner, you know, you're flying first class. You're living a very good life. You become desensitized to the real world. And I think that happened to me as well. You know, when you're a partner with this major brand behind your name and you want to have a meeting with anyone, easily done, right? I mean, it's not perfect, but it can more or less be easily done. Even if you couldn't get it, another senior partner of the firm could arrange it. But once you leave and you don't have this phenomenal support mechanism, you realize that, you know what? You weren't just a star by yourself. You were good, but also the support mechanism and the brand of the firm played a huge role. And I think a lot of partners forget this. A lot of people develop this mindset that, you know what? I'm bringing all the value to the firm and the firm should reward me more. Now, Firms like McKinsey and BCG manage these people out very quickly. And those who stay behind and for whatever reason are not managed out become a toxic asset to the business because they start spreading the wrong kind of ideas into the business. I mean, when I was at uh, when I was a partner, I remember at one point there was a discussion about one of the offices wanting to, to break off from the broader partnership because they didn't think that the remuneration structure was correct. I thought there was a bad idea and I was one of the partners at that time dealing with internal issues in the firm and I remember flying down with a couple of the senior partners and we put a stop to it right then and there. This cannot go on. You know, if you if you're not happy with it, that's fine, but you can't you know, what you're doing is basically treason and we're not gonna allow that. So if you're not happy with it, you're welcome to leave. But basically you cannot manage this office anymore because the value system you are inculcating is not conducive to the long term health of this business. I mean my view was we should have, you know, enacted the majority we needed to vote out that those partners um, the senior partners decided not to do it they felt they should stay either it was a bad decision and really you know these guys didn't add a lot of value over the next few years and they had to leave anyway but i think that when your values are compromised you must act very quickly as a partner you are the guardians of the values system of the firm i think just a couple of other things that people need to consider is the fact that um Things are not as great as you think it is when you become a partner. I mean, I'll be quite honest with you. And I know that, you know, consulting firms don't like to say this, but being a partner is difficult. I mean, I didn't have a lot of time to myself. I mean, okay, I'm going I'm to put in a caveat here by saying that I don't have a lot of time to myself now. But as a partner, you don't have a lot of time to yourself. You, um, The hours are very intense. I mean, n- none of the partners I know 
have a good lifestyle. I mean, they work really, really hard. They're working till the you know wee hours of the morning. They're getting up early. They're, they're, the traveling is brutal. The traveling is really bad. Um, the hours are intense. The quality of work is just you know insane. And the worst thing is, the better you are at your job, the more you're given. I mean, that's really bad. You know, it's like. You, if you if you improve your performance to kind of create a breathing room for you, they just shove something further down for you to do. So, being a partner, while it's wonderful, you never get a chance to enjoy it. And that's one of the things I learned as being a partner. I saved a lot of money because I never had a chance to spend it. You know how many times I cancelled dinner? Let me tell you something. The number of times I cancelled dinner, the number of times I cancelled Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, birthdays, celebrations... It you can't imagine. I just never spent money because I had no time to spend it. You know, I mean, food. There were weeks where I never spent any money on food. Why? Because I'd be going out for client dinners and I would be too hungry to buy my own food. So you save a heck of a lot of money. That's the thing people never tell you. You save a ton of money. The firm is basically paying for everything, right? I mean, I was very careful to be quite honest about it. I mean, for example, if I felt that, you know, this dinner, I was going to buy it for myself anyway, I'd put it on my personal credit card. But if it was a, a corporate event, you know, a firm event, I obviously would go on my firm credit card if a client was there and so on. And there were even times whereby, you know, if I took out a client, I'd even put it on my own personal credit card because I thought, you know, this client's a friend. We we probably would, do, would do, have done this anyway because, you know, we're friends anyway, not just because he's a client, so I'd put it on my personal credit card. But even so, you save a ton of money. You can't imagine how much you save. You're earning a, a fairly high salary. As a principal, you're earning anywhere from about $400,000 to about $500,000. So you're earning a lot of money. You know, take-home salary on that um, is probably some anywhere between $250,000 to $320,000, depending on where you're based. If you're based in Dubai, you're probably taking all of that home. But you're just saving this incredible amount of money and, you know, you've got to make all these decisions about where your life is going. So I think there's pressure there in terms of, you know, the you never have a chance to step back. And I think that's one of the mistakes I made. I, I never took vacations. I just worked all the time. In fact, there was a time where I took a vacation for two weeks and I met my project team every single day in my house. Yep, they'd come in for breakfast, late breakfast at 10 o'clock. I'd meet them till 12 o'clock. Then, then they'd rock off. And I was quite proud of myself. But the problem with doing that is that you never have a time to, to sit back and think about where your career is going, where your life is going, and so on. And that was a mistake. I mean, I think it hurt my career to do that. I should have taken time away. I should have taken vacations. And maybe I made some bad decisions. In fact, I probably made some bad decisions because of that. But I think as a partner, the most important things you can do, those are the biggest mistakes, is to not defend the values of the firm. I think you must do that. I think the second thing is the biggest mistake is not to groom another round of leaders. And a round of leaders is not just at the engagement manager level. Your job is to groom an analyst into an associate, an associate into an engagement manager, and so on. And I mean, to do that, you have to make yourself accessible. I think I was accessible. I mean, I was always on my phone. I remember I'd come home at a maybe... 8 o'clock sometimes, if I'm lucky, and I'd be on the phone. I'd be on the phone till 11 o'clock talking to people. Hey, I'd call up, hey, Stephen, how was your day? How are things going? You told me about this difficulty in the project. I mean, I'd speak to people about an hour and a half every day on my phone. On weekends, it was even worse. I remember very clearly, about 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock, I'd be on my phone speaking to people. Just call them up and find out what they're doing. My team, if I had a team somewhere in Istanbul, I had a team in Moscow or a team in Dublin or somewhere, I'd call them up and say, you know, 
how is the project going? You know, what can we help with? You know, how is everything going? What's happening at home? I know you're having these personal problems. Anything I could do to help? In fact, you know, one uh, associate who was in a project uh, was very unhappy because there was no one there to feed her pets. And I remember driving for 30 minutes to her apartment, feeding them. But those are the things I did as a partner because I wanted the teams to know that I had their backs. And I remember once there was a team. Uh, the point is, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to show values. And I remember once we were we had committed to a client, a small client, right? To um, to help them with something, it was a very small project. The fees were minuscule, right? It wasn't about the fees. And we had another really big client who wanted me to fly halfway across the world to do something for, for them, and it was it would have led to a large project. And I remember sitting with the partner and said, "Look, we can't do this. We committed to the smaller client. Let's ask the larger client if I can do this. Um, if they agree, then I'll go to the smaller client. But we but we can't just." unilaterally leave the smaller client on the lurch. So we, we, I called out the larger client and said, look, I can't come to you immediately, but we'll send another partner and I'll join you in three days. And they said, no problem. I went to see the smaller client. And, you know, because I knew the smaller client fairly well, uh, the uh, CEO, um, word eventually, eventually found out what I had done. You know, I turned down this larger company to spend time with them for a you know, smaller fee, much smaller fee. And the thing is, over the next few years, this small company, through a series of merger, became one of, you know, not, not the largest in this sector, but a major player. And we remained as their primary advisor because of these small things that showed our value system. And that's the thing that I find with many people, you know, partners, and at all levels of the organization, you must understand values have a cost. In this particular case, the cost would have been maybe losing out the work for the larger client. But I'm okay that I committed to do something for the smaller client and I must do it. And, that, and I was willing to bear the cost of doing that. I mean, a couple of partners were not happy about it, but I said, look, the point is we committed to do this and, and we, we, we must do it. We, we cannot ignore it. You know, it, it would be totally wrong to ignore it. So I think that's the partnership level, some of the things you could do. Now I'm going to talk about the you know, director level or executive director level or managing director, depending on what you call it at your firm. But the highest level of partnership, right? And you know, once you've been there for like 15, 20 years, and again, I'm talking here. I'm talking here about um, colleagues who I've never. I was never the most. I was never a senior director or managing director of the firm. I stopped. I left as a partner. Some some of the mistakes, and there's not a lot of mistakes you make at this point. But I do feel that I think that when you're a managing director, you must not take your eye off pushing the envelope in terms of the level of thinking in your sector. I've seen some reports coming out from BCG McKinsey, and I looked at myself and said, is this report really telling me anything new? It's just a survey. I mean, I remember seeing a BCG report on internet, on the contribution of the internet to the economy around the world. And yeah, it's an interesting report, but is it really pushing the envelope and or is this more, you know, tacking onto a big subject and trying to put your name out? Then I I mean sure, I mean I spoke to the to the managing partner who put this out and he has some reasons, but I thought to myself, you know what? It's a survey, it's a glorified survey with some analysis and it's interesting, but I don't see much depth of analysis here. So I think you must always push the envelope. I also think that when you become a managing director, you've got to create room for the new round of leadership. So, you know, what happens when you become a managing director? Where do you go next? You don't really go anywhere after that. You just become a more and more senior partner. But I think it is in your it is your duty to find opportunities to promote, groom, and create uh, initiatives for more younger partners to show what they're capable of. Give them more initiatives to run. It's like that you know, outstanding engagement manager I pointed out. Work in the background, but give other people the opportunity to do things. Some of the biggest mistakes I've seen made by managing directors is to, I think, assume that they, 
Let me just work to pick my words here carefully. I've seen a lot of managing directors jump ship into industry too soon. And I think that, yes, industry is very lucrative, but it can also be damaging, you know. You have this fantastic senior partner, you've done many f amazing things, and then you go into industry and you don't make it, right? You just can't turn around the company and your name is tarnished. And I mean, there are big names in consulting that have struggled to do that. Some of the biggest names in consulting have never made it in industry and they just failed, they just fizzled. Obviously, consulting firms never talk about that. But then there are also partners who don't, who don't leave soon enough. I've seen some fantastic partners. You know, and I mean fantastic partners, I mean people, if I mentioned their name, you'd know them because they've developed new ways of thinking that have shaped industry. And I, I know one very close colleague of mine who I speak to fairly often, he was, he's really one of the smartest people. He's regarded as one of the greatest minds in management consulting today. And he has been sidelined at the firm because the new managing partner does not agree with, his with the direction he wants to take the firm. And he's been sidelined. And in my opinion, he should move into industry now. But on the other hand, he's, he's, while he's good at what he does as a managing partner, he's not an operator. On the one hand, it's too late. On the one hand, he stayed at the consulting firm for too long. On the other hand, it's too late for him to move in industry, so he's stuck in this twilight zone whereby, you know, he's just got to be happy with the title that he has, continue publishing books, and you know what? Everyone looks up to him and says, oh my God, you were such a senior person, your life must be so wonderful, but he knows it's horrible. I speak to him often and his life is not good. He, he doesn't feel he gets enough respect for what he does. He doesn't feel the firm is using enough of his skills. He just publishes books, puts some stuff into the Harvard Business Review, makes money, you know, it's all relative. So I think the mistake is knowing how long to stick it out and on the other, if the flip side is knowing uh, if it's too late to make the jump into industry. So I've spoken for a long time here. It's coming into an hour, but I'm just going to tie up a few things here, right? If you want to not make these mistakes, I think there are a couple of things you can do. The first thing is make sure your significant other, your partner, is not tied to your industry. I think one of the, the things that I saw very carefully with with partners that did well analysts who did well associates who did well, engagement managers who did well they had very strong partners who kept them in check so you know they didn't allow the partner to run amok just because he's a managing partner you know their wives or their husbands kept them in check and i think that never make never marry someone in your industry i think that's a bad idea because then your lifestyle becomes normal you know, if your partner thinks it's okay to miss Christmas and New Year's Day, then it's never going to change. I think when you have a partner who's not in your industry and doesn't understand what you're going through, it, it actually forces you to abide by normalcy. And I think you should also make sure that you never force your partner to, to become friends with your colleagues because then she becomes sensitized or desensitized to what you're going through. I think it's important to have a, a partner who's going to keep you on the straight and narrow couple of other things you can do. I think never get seduced by the lifestyle. Yes, the money is great. The travel is good. You're you know, always meeting important people. But always remember something. That unless you are building really important skills, even if you're the managing partner for an office, you may not get a good you may not get a lucrative industry position. So you must obviously keep your perspective in terms of the skills you are developing and your title. You know, really what does it mean when you go back into industry? And I think the other important lesson that cuts across all these levels is that you know, it's important to learn and build colleagues. You know, I've seen so many people that don't build coalitions. You've got to build, you've got you to network laterally and vertically and make sure that you have a coalition of the willing to 
paraphrase George Bush, who no matter what you go through will be able to step up and help you. If you don't do those things, no matter how successful you are, you're just going to have to work harder because no one's going to help you. The more and more responsibility you get, the more and more you have to do. The only way to be promoted is that the more and more you get, the more and more you're able to pass this down to a team who's willing to help you. If you don't have the team behind you and the more and more senior you go, you're unable to move further because you can't do the work because no one is willing to help you. And people don't understand this. They never understand this point. And how do you do that? Well, you give people praise liberally and you groom them. You groom an army of people behind you to support you as you move up. And if you groom this army to support you, you'll move forward no matter what happens. As an analyst, you, you, train, you help other analysts to do their jobs better. So when you become an associate, those analysts want to work for you. When you become an engagement manager, the associates you trained and made them feel good about their careers, they want to support you. When you become a principal or partner, the engagement managers you trained want to support you. And that's the way it works. You can't move forward unless you have an army behind you. And an army is only going to support you if you make their lives materially better and you give them the opportunity to excel. As always, if you have questions, feel free to respond and I will comment.